Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting female founder. And uh, obviously I think that we're gonna learn a lot today about turnaround on companies, about raising money as a female founder, uh, about doing acquisitions, uh, I think that you name it. So I think that without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Deidre Pagnat. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. So glad to be here. So originally born in Stockton, California, so not far away from, from Mountain View, but, uh, but obviously your, your early uh, beginnings, you know, in, 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 in being born and being raised, you know, probably were not as, as easy. So, so how were those uh, early beginnings in your life, Deidre, and, and what kind of lessons did you learn from that? So in some ways, Stockton's pretty far from, from Mountain View or, or Silicon Valley. It's, uh, it's kind of 100 miles, but it might as well be 1,000. Uh, really, <laughs> okay. There's like no overflow of the tech world or scene or, or the opportunities that the tech world provides into uh, that region. But no, I, I grew up kind of a poor kid. My dad was a, an auto mechanic. Uh, there was five of us. Um, and it was my stepdad who was auto mechanic. My father been killed in the mil in military service. And so it was like a little bit messy, you know, kind of grown up. And, uh, I, uh, was very intent on, for some reason on, uh, on finding opportunities and exploring the world and kind of living a bigger life. And, uh, so I had a lot of urgency to, uh, to go to college and, uh, and I had some sort of really financial constraints. So I needed to go to college on the benefits that they pay you when your your father's killed in the service. And um, so I was trying to rush through college and through law school by the time I was 22. So left high school early, left college early, um, just kind of got on my way out into the world as fast as I could. And I guess, and I guess, hey, obviously, you know, like everything that, or every card that we're dealt with in life, you know, is there for a reason. And, uh, you know, I guess that you know, every, every experience, you know, it really, it really shapes us to be, you know, who we end up being, you know, from a personality and, and also from a perspective. Uh, I guess in, in your uh, case, Deidre, uh, obviously, you know, like the, you know, like kind of like the upbringing and, and all these different, you know, events, you know, that, that were unfortunate, you know, I'm sure that, that they really, you know, like uh, had something for you there to, to learn. What, what was that? 
Yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right about that. I, I think that there's a, um, well, among other things, I have a super strong survival instinct. Uh, I'm a, I'll uh, confess, I'm a, I'm a pretty fierce person. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively short and small, so my ferocity can surprise people because I don't, I don't look <laughs> like the package that you know is, is fierce. But, uh, right. but that I think that um, that ferocity and tenacity are like just fabric that was woven in kind of the first whatever, uh, maybe even like the first five years of my life because it was sort of my my father passed away when I was very young, and my mom was also very young, and it was uh, in a little bit hard scrabble and. Uh, as I said, messy, but that um, uh, this sort of, uh, I, I don't know, the, the orientation to move beyond that and to see all there is and to be all that I can be, uh, that energy and urgency came really early in my life. And and I would say uh, as an entrepreneur, and which I've been now for two decades, those things, energy, urgency, tenacity, ferocity, boy, those are, those turned out to be really good ingredients for, uh, for my adulthood, for my life. Um, and while they may were, maybe were a little bit hard earned, I am uh, damn glad that I earned them. A hundred percent. And probably during those years where there was limited resources and, and things like that, was there like maybe like a point? I mean, you 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 said earlier that you wanted to live a, a bigger life. Was there like a moment that for you was quite you know like that moment where you said you know that's it. I'm I want to live a bigger life. I think I don't think there was a moment or an inflection, and and maybe um, you know my mom and and, and my stepdad uh, with whom I'm very close, right? They um, they sort of. Uh, fed me a little bit of a different thing, right? They they conveyed to me my father's uh, hopes, right? So they they gave me this little kernel of, hey, you can be uh, you can be whatever you want, and um, and you can compete and win at whatever you want to compete and win on. It's just hard work. Just do the work, but but there's no cap on you if you're willing to do the work, and so that that which is just sort of a, the, the ethic of maybe kind of blue color, central U.S., central California, but the, it's a good ethic, right? And so that, that was always in, the, um, in play. And, you know, I got, I, I was, a, this will sound dorky, but I, I was like a relatively smart kid, right? So I, I got, schools were also kind of taking care of, in a sense, making sure I got into this program and that program and those things really early on um, that that smoothed the path, even though I was it was a little bit of a rocky path. They they did their best to smooth it, and and so there wasn't a, a moment that that uh, that kernel, that idea that um, that I could live a life as big as I was willing to work for, that was kind of always there uh, for me. And I you know, for that sense, I'm like grateful for the those programs that sort of opened the door. I think I, there's five kids in my family. I'm the, the only one that went to college and and in my kind of the town itself uh, at that time, it was, it's not a particularly college bound community. It had a huge amount of, kind of drug problems right now. It's got tons of drug and, and gang problems. It was like the whole city declared bankruptcy. Like it's not an awesome destination city right now for anybody, but uh, 
now people from Stockton are going <laughs> to send me emails. <laughs> to but anyway, uh, but I, I was grateful for, I am grateful for the, the people who sort of early on um, saw potential, told me that I had that potential, which allowed me to believe that I did and, and allowed me to then to kind of grow up with that concept as opposed to have to, you know, back into it or find it somewhere. It's, it, it gave it to me quite early. And, and for that, um, I think I'm lucky. And in some senses, I, every kid should have had that kernel, not, not just me, but, uh, uh, but I had it, I had it fairly early. And, and in your case, um, you went to, you went to college quite early, mm-hmm. uh, and, and also you wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, yeah. obviously that, that didn't turn out to be as, as expected. And, and, and we'll talk about that, but why did you want it to be a lawyer? You know, in, uh, in those days there were, there were like three models of, I mean, maybe there were kind of five models, but there's of what you could be when you grow up. And there were, um, you know, there was, I'll call it trades, so like a fireman, police officer, nurse, right. Was one set. I'm like, I'm none of those things, uh, or doctor or lawyer, the images that the, like the patterns that you could look to, um, as a little girl and see yourself in, in the world in the future, in particular pre-internet and particular coming from kind of a blue collar environment, like there weren't that many patterns out there, right. Of, of what to imagine your future, uh, self being, right. I knew I wanted to work and be professional. I was just unbelievably clear to me very early on that I wanted economic independence. I was really committed to really that economic independence. And so it was like, okay, doctor or lawyer, like I'm not a doctor. And I was reasonably articulate. I love to write. I think I'm a a rational, logical uh, person and thinker and, and law resonated with me for those reasons. And then I have this sort of crusader ferocity and that all seemed to say, okay, go be a lawyer. Right. And so I, uh, super early on, like high school, I was like these judge, uh, things where I'd, you know, go sit with the judge for a day or do that once a semester. And like all these things to sort of track myself to being a lawyer and uh, including working in the DA's office when I was in college. And, uh, and it was just, I was very single, track mind about becoming a lawyer growing up that I didn't one even know about the other possibilities, much less entertain any other possibilities. And obviously uh, that, that, that's something that happened because during, you know, just like the early stages of, of doing your, your JD, your, your law school, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the tech industry came knocking and that kind of like changed everything for you. Yeah. 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 I was, end of my first year at law school, uh, I was living in LA and, um, uh, I got a summer job at a semiconductor company and I had, uh, I spent my student loan buying a Mac and a printer and like geeking out on computers. And so, um, so I was working over the summer at this tech company and this was, this was a long time ago, but at the time, like big complex systems to draw complex, um, semiconductor chip and packaging and assembly, uh, those, the machinery to, to draw and to build those like diagrams and detailed instructions were like a million bucks. And I figured out this summer that if I just use this Mac that I, at the time would spent a 
a gross near $5,000 on. <laughs> um, but if I took this Mac and this printer and I, I replaced the printer cartridge with this really cool thing in its day, which was a, a, a cartridge that read dot by dot or pixel by pixel an image. And if that in a sense was a scanner, right? And so if I use my Mac and this scanner and a printer cartridge, I could actually create the equivalent power uh, uh, as this huge, like million dollar CAD CAM systems at the time. And so I like came up with this thing, went and told my boss, he said, write a proposal. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to write a proposal, but sure, I write a proposal. And next thing you know, I, I have a, a team of nine people. I had five Mac stations and we're now on the company tour when customers visit. Like, oh, this is awesome, actually. <laughs> I see something that doesn't work very well and I see a way to use technology to fix it. And that results in more opportunity and a kind of elevation in my career. This is great. I'm not going back to law school. This is, <laughs> this is too fun. Right. So, that, so obviously this was uh, really what you dedicated, you know, the rest of your life really to the world of uh, hyper growth companies, tech enabled businesses and and this was a nice segue uh, as well into your first company which you did in the early 30s so um so tell us about this experience uh, i believe this company was called cobia technologies is that right yep yep same co- co-founder as at workboard and we uh he had been working uh, at the time he he was at adobe uh it, it was one of the first like five guys on adobe acrobat and he'd been really instrumental in that technology and this was sort of before the uh, before we all use browsers, then he went to Netscape, right? So really early inflection points in in the internet. And we, at the time, thought that if we could communicate with our customers much, much faster and much more freely than the generation of uh, before us, right, it, pre-internet, it would just be phenomenal. This sounds so stupid right now because obviously it's beyond phenomenal, but we started a company then and Covia was very oriented around taking really high quality, high value content that we cared about delivering, our customers cared about delivering to the world. And that might be really broadly to the world. One of our customers was the uh, US Olympics, um, or it might be very precisely to the world of customers. So another uh, one of our customers, um, Wells Fargo, ADP, et cetera, they were communicating to their customers. But we really saw this opportunity to take super high value content and help companies deliver it with greater ease uh, and without technical skill to their to their audience or to their stakeholders. So uh, those were kind of crazy and heady days. But effectively, the product that Covia produced was um, SharePoint. Uh, which was a super smart set of ideas on publishing content, having conversations around them, creating little micro sites with that content uh, and doing that really easily with a, just a, a regular, ordinary, non-technical person. It just, it was, um, it was a little early for the universe, um, but it was, it was successful in its day, but a little early maybe for the broad success that I think um, it could have had. and and perhaps theoretically still can have in the universe. And here you raised uh, about 27 million mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and here you decided to hire a CEO, an external CEO. Um, and obviously that's, that's a very big deal uh, as, yeah. a, as a founder because you're bringing someone that is completely outsider to really 
you know, lead your baby. So mm-hmm. I know that that didn't turn out as expected, uh, per- perhaps the time or the skill set. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yep. So at uh, the company we'd started in the late 90s uh, and we'd raised money. Adobe Ventures was an investor and raised money. We had some pretty good success. Like American Airlines uh, rolled out our, our product enterprise-wide, like 100,000 employees. We'd, we were on a, a roll, right? We uh, had uh, some really nice uh, uh, customers and success stories behind us. And I think probably we'd raised maybe 9 million-ish or so. Uh, and then 99 was this huge inflection. The company was growing really quickly. I was a first-time CEO. I'd never run sales or marketing. I'd always been in operational roles internally. And so I just didn't have a lot of sales and marketing uh, particularly not enterprise sales and marketing chops. And in those days, there was sort of this, you have founders and CEOs, and then when the company gets to a certain scale, you bring in a professional uh, executive who knows how to scale sales. And that was a fairly prevailing mindset uh, at the time. And so in late 1999, uh, we, in early 2000, made a decision, I guess, actually it was probably... Uh, a trip to Hawaii in December, 1999, that <laughs> we, my co-founder and I made the decision to bring in a, a CEO who had a lot more sales scale um, and who'd led large, built and led larger sales organizations, which seemed to be the next sort of stage in, in the company's life. Um, we announced that in, uh, and uh, that she was joining the company in April, 2000. Uh, and of course, what we're bringing in was a person who'd run much larger organizations from inside even larger organizations. So a person who could operate at high scale. And of course, what happened in the universe was uh, the downturn of 2000, the kind of financial economic crisis. And, uh, and unfortunately, well, two things. One is uh, she and I raised money in the fall of 2000 after the crash put about $26.5 million in the bank uh, on a fundraise, um, and which was, you know, an actual feat to to raise that much money after the crash. Um, but we did do that. Uh, however, as we moved into 2001, it became super clear that it was a time to be a scrappy entrepreneur, uh, not a time to be a big company sales executive. And uh, the company just just didn't survive uh, through the following two years, and ultimately, kind of 2002, it it um, it shut down. In 2001, I left the company. Uh, actually, it kind of ended 2000 after raising the money. I left the company, um, and and she led, but it it was not successful. It it got to be super scrappy when times are tough, and and scrappy wasn't wasn't in a resume, right? So we had, yeah. I think, just the wrong skills at at a uh, really crucial period in uh, in the company's life and frankly, in the in the macro economy. And obviously the, your co-founder, you know, it's, it's also now your co-founder, you were mentioning mm-hmm. now at Workboard, which we're going to talk in just a little bit, uh, but obviously your husband too. So co-founder mm-hmm. in life and in business, uh, which uh, which is, I think it's it's an amazing trait, by the way. Uh, but but I guess, uh, or, uh, or an amazing thing to have, because, because at the end of the day, you know, like your co-founder, it's it's like you gotta trust them, and the, the dynamics need to be so clear. I mean, I, I've gone I've gone through that with my last company with my wife. So I guess you know, in in this case, uh, obviously the outcome was not as expected. So 
So, I mean, I'm sure that for you and for, for your co-founder, you know, in life and in business, Darius, yep. I'm sure it was a tough pill to swallow. So, uh, so how was that, you know, also that, that morning uh, process to, for you guys, no? Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was challenging, right? So he stayed. Um, I, I moved on at the end of 2000 after the fundraising, but he stayed as CTO and head of engineering. And, and I think in some ways, I mean, we each had the kind of a, the, like the, if you will, the kind of the fading out two years, we each had a very different experience of that because he was in the business trying to, uh, help win new customers and so on. And, uh, and I was focused on other things and I was doing a consulting gig at a Sequoia company. And, and so we had, I think he was closer to the pain than I was. I was sad, um, but he was like day-to-day immersed in um, the kind of try to save it. Uh, and I think that was super hard. I think uh, we, that was, you know, now quite a long time ago. And he he went on to some pretty interesting companies and and I I went on to other things as well. And, and what, with a lot of distance now, I think we were both much clearer about what we learned about ourselves, about our skill set, about uh, company building. And for me, I, I was able to take some of my biggest learnings straight into my next gig. At, and I'm sure it, he did as well into his next. And, and so the, and maybe just because we were a, a bit younger, I, I think it was, um, we valued what we gained and what we gained was actually in our understanding of ourselves and of company building. And we valued that a lot. What was hard then, and which maybe took us, uh, ironically, maybe the longest to get over was in those days, right? There was a lot of friends and family investing. And, uh, and so, and, and there were friends and family who, you know, begged to put money in, in 1999. And, and when we raised money and, there, I, I still have an aunt and uncle who won't talk to me because they, although they begged to put their money in, they're still pissed off. Uh, whatever, how many years is this? Um, 20 years later. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, uh, and, and so I, I tell you right now, there are no friends and family investors in workforce. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson learned. So now, now when you're having the turkey in Thanksgiving, there's no talking about valuation. Exactly right. Exactly right. Like, your greed is your problem. It is not going to be I, my problem. I hear you. Well, you know, in your case, you know, you definitely bounced back. Um, you know, you went into doing some gigs with with a company from Sequoia. And then, you know, it's interesting because you go from a, from one storm to another. So you went into <laughs> turning around another company. But in this case, you actually turn it around. So tell mm-hmm. us about that. Yep. So I was uh, recruited to... Uh, a company to be a turnaround CEO, and it was a, a well-funded company. They'd raised thirty million. Uh, they were two and a half years old or so when I went in. The company was PSS Systems, and it was backed by Lightspeed, and uh, was a uh, at the time it was very focused on securing documents and document encryption. Um, and the CEO, who was a very successful person, uh, had decided that. The idea he was working on wasn't going to work. It needed, it wasn't going to pan out. So investors either needed to take their money back or uh, go find a new CEO who wanted to do kind of the hard work of uh, figuring out uh, what kind of company to build. And so I looked at that as a fabulous opportunity. So the economy was down, but there was, of the 30 million that raised, they still had half of it in the bank. 
Uh, and um, I had a huge appetite to go build a company uh, and and to make it uh, super successful. And so I uh, obviously had a lot to prove. And so I dove in and was uh, super fun, right? And figuring out what it could be and so on. And in some ways it was, I, I went in doing the same thing I'd been doing in, at the Sequoia company I was consulting with, uh, which was helping them figure out what market segment, what buyer, what solution they were going to pursue which was a little bit unclear. And I was pretty methodical about uh, hypothesis for problem, hypothesis for buyer, hypothesis for value threshold, uh, and and really vet, vetting those hypotheses with data before committing a substantial amount of uh, capital and, and time. And that's what I'd been doing at the Square Company. So I took the same approach as I came into this company and said, hey, I'm going to take this much time to flesh out the hypothesis. I'm going to take four months to go uh, test that hypothesis. This is how I'm going to do the research. This is the approach I'm going to take to validate it. At the end of that period, you guys either take your money back or we invest and build this business. Between now and that, I'm going to cut spending way back and I'm going to sit on as much of the capital that we have right now uh, so that should we decide to go invest uh, four months or five months from now, we have we have plenty of capital to go do that. And so uh, that was a super fun and interesting exercise, like looking for what are the problem spaces that are interesting. And uh, there was at the time a huge rise in the amount of data being stored. And so storage companies were not only getting funded, but were growing like crazy and super successful. And at the same time, like this is like 2003, uh, 2004, there's all the aftermath of the financial crisis. So there was also a whole bunch of compliance things going crazy. Um, and you know, uh, firms that were destroying data and, and getting in really big trouble for doing that and destroying evidence and so on. And so there's, you know, is it either of those problems? And then we had the novel idea that those problems are related, right? That if we have this massive growth in data combined with massive change in our obligations for that data, it's not going to work out well unless we have a way to manage the two together. And so we had this idea um, that those things would intersect and that we needed to give corporate legal uh, and corporate IT organizations ways to balance the two, rising data, rising obligations for it. And um, and so I really, actually, I loved that part of the, the kind of the first four or five months of the company working through that hypothesis and then met with 55 companies and tested the hypothesis and the companies were segmented so we could figure out whether it was, you know, large enterprise was a, a better place to start or mid-market. My hypothesis was mid-market. The data showed large enterprise. And so we about, and this is kind of old school world where building software was harder and slower than it is today. But about nine months later, customer number one was Citigroup. Customer number two was Credit Suisse. They were 48 hours apart in signing our first agreement. And uh, PSS was off to really creating a category, uh, which was uh, super fun. That's amazing. And obviously, it, it did work out because the company ended up being acquired by IBM. You know, the total amount of money was uh, raised was $40 million. So, so what, a, what a run. And this was obviously the segue 
into the next time you and your mm -hmm. husband, Ariush, will get together once again. You know, you got the plan together once again. So, so tell us about then Workboard. You know, like how did you guys get together again and said, hey, let's let's give it another shot together. Yeah. So over the course of, you know, PSS, when I was CEO there for seven years and, uh, and over the course of it, right, I'm telling him the stories from work and, uh, you know, there were inflection points where I was, you know, God, I wish you were my partner and you were building a product and whatever. And so like we had uh, wishful thinking over the course of that, that journey. And then um, when I, uh, when I was at IBM, and I ended up running the kind of the business group that I was acquired into, took over the IBM portfolio related to it, bought another company. And, uh, and we were acquired in 2010. And I, in those next three years, I really drove a lot of growth and some very large uh, software deals, like 10, more than 10 million in software uh, inside IBM, which was, um, you know, elephant hunting at its finest. But I got much deeper enterprise experience over the course of PSS, where most of the Fortune 50 were customers, and then deeper still inside IBM. And the what was becoming clear to me was uh, that the ability to drive the business with mission and metrics alignment, like where everybody's on the same page, everybody knows which needles need to move and by how much, and everybody knows their part in that. That is just so ridiculously hard inside large enterprise and large organizations. And I was experiencing it running my business at IBM. I was seeing it happen in who my large enterprise customers uh, and counterparts were. I was seeing them suffer from that as well. The getting everybody results aligned and getting the answer to how are we doing now on the strategic priorities, they were so hard, they were so opaque, so slow, so labor intensive that it was, I found it, uh, I just actually found it super frustrating and, uh, and it was starting to get exhausting, actually, how labor intensive it was to get people results aligned and to get the facts on our results. At the same time, Dariush who is a hardcore cyclist and has been for like decades, he's racing with the team. And um, this at the point where I'm like super frustrated on how I can't get any transparency on results and any alignment on results in my business, he and his buddies who'd been tracking their personal performance in spreadsheets for years, they all moved into Strava uh, and they could all see each other's results on Strava. And they were sort of they're, as a team, they got stronger and they were more competitive and kind of moved into some of their best winning years as a team in, in, in how they performed in races. And of course, they because they could see each other's result, they sort of, they competed with each other to do better, right? And he had this epiphany uh, that once he could see those results in context of his peers, he could then optimize how he trained so he could train fewer hours and, and come out at the same place in the race, which was like, for both of us, was like, oh my gosh, that's the holy grail, right? Less effort, more impact. And so he was getting all this lift and momentum and uh, benefit from results transparency across his team. And I was like dying from the absence of results transparency in my business and going nuts. And so it literally, it was a little bit like the peanut butter chocolate Reese's peanut butter thing, like, oh, wait how come you can have that for cycling, right? 
and, and team sport. And I can't have that for work. And wait a minute here. Let's, these things can go together, man. And it, how would it look? What would it be like? And so uh, he got started right away. And I, well, I was still at IBM and, uh, and we just set about sort of thinking, hypothesizing, okay, what would that look like? How would it be? And so on. And so a bunch of the processes and cycles of aligning on the plan, driving the operations reviews, the business reviews that I was doing at, I, at IBM, we started to then flesh out what that would look like if it was really digital and you had the same transparency of team results, individual results, results over time, like how smart you could be uh, as a business. And that uh, that's workboard. So what, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? We uh, sell that large enterprise. So we license the software application or subscription to it. Uh, customers are, uh, Comcast, Cisco, Workday, Microsoft, IBM, Samsung, uh, Transamerica, really large enterprises that are not unlike the one I was working in when we had the idea. Um, we quite a few uh, startup companies that are about to uh, go public or have just gone public, like a Malwarebytes, Seismic, Zora, uh, are customers as well, where you're starting to get to a scale where you, you have to be conscious of aligning on results and you need uh, to have more structure and velocity and how you understand what those results are because you've got more layers in the organization. Uh, and uh, so the business model for us is enterprise sales in kind of the classic sense. And it's been actually about a, three years in a row. We've tripled uh, sales and that's what obviously we hope to do this year as well. Very nice. And uh, obviously here you, you've raised quite a bit of money. So uh, how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised an early seed round while I was still at IBM of uh, about 2.75 million. So that was five years ago or maybe a little more. Uh, raised a Series A with Floodgate in the fall of 2017 of 9 million. And then in 2019, uh, we raised a Series B in March of 23 million. And then we raised a Series C in December of $30 million. So $53 million total last year um, is our, our funding to date and low 60s total. Wow. And obviously, you guys have people like Andreessen Horowitz as well. So uh, so very good stuff. So obviously, here you've learned quite a bit on, on fundraising. Mm -hmm. So what would you say you know is the difference between fundraising, let's say, on a uh, on an economy that is really on the upside versus on an economy that is more on the downside? Yeah. It, um, well, first of all, if you can raise, if you have the foresight to, or hunch that the economy is swinging to the downside, um, go raise money, uh, and, which is what I was able to do at PSS. I, I had, um, uh, you know, our customers then, you know, included Citigroup and Merrill Lynch and, there was just this like discomfort in the air and thought, you know, I think uh, since I lived through 2000, I think I feel winter coming. I'm going to go get myself a coat of money uh, and venture money and make sure that I can stay warm, which was uh, super important in, in PSS through the harder uh, downturn years. I think uh, in even in 2000 raising money, it's it, revenue velocity or sales velocity is the giant thing. If you've got it, it's uh, good companies get funded, uh, whatever the macroeconomic environment is. And by good companies, I mean people with sales velocity, right? Where 
you had consistent accelerating growth on the sales side. I think that where I experienced maybe a bigger difference in uh, fundraising was, you know, at at PSS and at WorkBoard, we're category creating, right? So you're creating something that uh, there isn't a name for yet that people uh, haven't heard of. Maybe they haven't thought of the problem yet, or they uh, haven't ever given the problem a name. And so if you've got this sort of new way of seeing uh, issues and a new label for it, and then a new label for the solution to those issues, that's harder to raise money on because it requires the people that you're telling the story to, to first agree and identify with the problem and second agree and identify with how you're solving that problem. And that's, um, that's hard. Like that is, I think, super difficult. And, um, and I, and it was difficult for me in raising our series A, the seed funding was a little bit easier just because I I went back to investors that had invested in us before. But when I went to raise a series A in 2017, early part of 2017, there was like no category. All the words were new. People didn't, if they hadn't ever worked in a big enterprise, they didn't feel the pain. And so that, that was challenging, right? And it was too early for us to have a lot of sales velocity at that time. So they couldn't rely on external proof of problem and solution. Uh, and so I found it a, a lot more challenging as opposed to, you know, fast forward to 2019, you know, our from first meeting to term sheet on our series B was three weeks. And our from series B to series C was seven months. And from first meeting to term sheet in the series C was also three weeks. And so you've got a lot of sales velocity. So there's a lot of external exogenous evidence of problem and solution. And then the solution category has matured so much more. And there's so many more customer stories that it's a lot easier for uh, an investor, even if they haven't felt the problem, it's a lot easier for them to listen to other people, customers' descriptions of the problem, customers' descriptions of the solution, and then imagine that those two go together. And this is like really different than fundraising. If you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got the 11th generation of video meetings, right? Or of CRM. And here's how it's better than the generation before it. People already know what video meetings are. You're not starting with, okay, so meetings can be done differently, right? But if you're category creating you're, and you're solving really novel problems, like you have to, you have to start the education process so much farther upstream than something that is an evolution of a known or an existing solution to a, a well understood problem. Yeah, a hundred percent. And what about the um, just to expand just a tiny bit more on the fundraising subject? What are your thoughts on raising money as a male founder mm-hmm. versus female co-founder? Yeah. Um, so in the fundraising process, um, you know, I'm Daryush is a, a geeky guy and. Um, and our at this company, right? Our it, it, our enterprise customers and the narrative around enterprise and the business problem is is so central to it that most of the fundraising I I did, um, uh, I took all the first meetings and second meetings and so on. Uh, and I'm a, clearly a market facing person. I the, that belief I told myself a long time ago that I didn't understand sales and marketing turned out to be false. 
I totally understand them and maybe I'm, I might even be good at them. And so I, I do most of the fundraising. And I, I think, um, in, uh, in my series a, uh, so 2016, 2017, I believe raising money as a woman was unbelievably hard. And I, uh, I'll tell you that I, when I, when I raised the a in early 2017, somebody literally a, a VC said, you know what your problem is? You've got three strikes against you. First, you're a woman. Second, you're old. And third, you're married to your co-founder. Wow. And it was a, I think he just told me out loud what lots of people were not saying out loud, but were thinking. Uh, and this was a, in 2017, you know, there were no women partners anywhere. We were, women CEOs were still 4% of total venture funded CEOs, exactly the same percentage as it was when I, my first CEO gig in 1999. And so we weren't making any progress on that front, but I felt it was sort of the peak of negativity uh, and of friction in 2016, 2017 as a woman raising money. Uh, And then the dam broke. Something very interesting there, Deidre, is that the three strikes that that, that mm-hmm. investor mentioned to me are like the three biggest pluses that that you could ever think of because one there is a, there has never been a better time to be a woman right and especially mm-hmm. a female founder two your age you know gives you an experience and an edge that you know as an investor you're going to be investing on earlier stage you know first time founders that you're really investing also in their education so in this case you yeah. know you already have the, the education and then three, you know, the fact that you're doing it with your husband is also a major plus because uh, you already have the dynamics, the communication and the understanding and the respect. Uh, and also you go to sleep with it and you go and you wake up with it. So you're literally producing the investor's money directly or indirectly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the uh, first half of my buyers are women and and I don't think you like our our at Comcast, our our buyer, the person who we first met with and who's our sponsor, he's the president of Comcast Cable, TPX. At Workday, it's the CEO and the COO. And I'll tell you what, they're my age. And so if I sit down at the table with them and talk about the way running a business and driving growth is changing, I better not be 24, right? And I also, I should not have on a hoodie, right? I need to look like, and I need to be a credible executive with real experience growing organizations, both in startups and in large enterprise. And I think I'm exactly the right CEO and founder for this company and the problem we solve here. And I agree with you, like founder risk is huge. We already know how to argue. We already know how to grow things together. And we already know how to express our limitations to each other and work forward anyway. And I think if you invest in founders who've known each other for two years in college, I don't know. I don't. Other than a lot of parties, I don't know how much hard they've been through together and how much durability they have as they grow as human beings forward. Right? And I think it de-risks yeah. a lot. A hundred percent. So I guess, hey, how how big is Workboard for the folks that are listening? We're about one hundred and fifty people right now. A little more than a hundred uh, enterprise customers and close to three hundred thousand end users. Uh, the uh, we have fairly large and a, and a good number of enterprise-wide uh, rollouts of Workboard, at, for example, at Juniper and Workday, Zora, uh, the Comcast Cable Group. 
uh, where it's it's every person in the organization has has access to the solution. So the the solution footprint is is pretty big. Um, actually, Microsoft and Workday are both uh, substantial customers and also investors uh, alongside Andreessen Horowitz and GGV Capital. Very very cool, very cool. So uh, one question that I that I always ask the guests that that come on the show is. Uh, knowing what you know now, I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, like the remarkable experience that you have been able to 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 get, you know, over the years, especially with those with these two companies. If you had the opportunity to go back uh, in time, and I'm sure you've done a lot of reflection, you know, looking back, especially with with your co-founder, with Darius, your husband. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and and sit down with with that younger Deidre. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business, knowing what you know now and why? That's a good one. Um, I think there are two things that I wish I'd known um, earlier and all the way back to the first company. And uh, one of those is uh, believe in yourself and which would obviously have shifted the decision, I, the, the big decision that I made to hire a CEO, just believe in yourself you'll figure it out. And then the second um, that I just take super seriously is this, as a, as a CEO founder, pay incredibly close attention to the point at which you can move from founder-led selling to sales-led selling. And don't try to accelerate that too soon, but don't... Uh, don't go past the point at which you needed to have made a transition out of founder-led to team-led or organization-led selling. Because you the, the next big fail point is if you're the only person who can sell it, the whole company constrains around you. And I think founders um, make that mistake. I think I made that mistake early on. And so one of the, that very first company, while I had hired this person to come in and lead sales, what I had also not done was make sure that there were people behind me and around me who were as effective at selling as I was. And I had this odd thing where I both thought I wasn't good at sales and I needed somebody else to scale it. And clearly I did because I hadn't scaled it. But second, also I was good enough at sales to get the company to where it was. And then no one else behind me could carry that forward or carry that onward. And I just sort of recognized that in hindsight as kind of fatal, uh, really fatal mistakes. And for founders, first time in particular, you don't have any hindsight, borrow mine <laughs> if it'll help you. Yeah, no, I hear you 100%. So Deidre, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm at Deidre on uh, LinkedIn, D-A-Y underscore D-R-E-E. I'm pretty active on Twitter, so conversation there is awesome. Or I'm Deidre at workboard.com. Happy to chat anytime. Amazing. Well, Deidre, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. I'm delighted to have been in the conversation with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.